from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. My name is Taylor Nichols, and I'm here with Nick Richard, and this is 2024. Nick, when did you start Bike Talk? 2008. Wow. So you, we've been on the air 16 years. Wow. Welcome to 2024. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <coughs> we have a theme this episode, Taylor. It's connecting, connecting the dots. The dots. The, the departments of transportation. And we have three interviews on that theme. The first is with Tim Fremo, senior transportation engineer at the Los Angeles Department of Transportation. You know, Tim is really wonderful. He's a progressive traffic engineer. An oxymoron? I hope not, because uh, Tim's a good guy and he's helped us out a lot in the past. Then we have Roger Ruddick. He's the editor of Streets Blog San Francisco right. with Stacey Randecker. And they talk about the SFMTA, their DOT, and their bike coalition. You know what Roger says? They're faking Vision Zero. They're pretending to go for Vision Zero, and they're just putting a Band-Aid on things and not really trying to make systemic change on the roadways. So we have that interview, and we also have a couple of guys from the cycling embassy in Japan. This might be our first story from Japan. They are dealing with a lot of the same issues we're dealing with, where the Department of Transportation is not doing the job making the streets safe. Not only that, but they're cracking down on cyclists, actively discouraging biking. But it's the 16th best bike city. In the world, right. Well, let's get to it. Let's hear Tim Fremo. This is Lindsay Sturman and I. Tim is here in his personal capacity, but his day job is he's an, a traffic engineer at LA Department of Transportation, LA DOT. Welcome, Tim. Maybe you could explain to us why does LA always have traffic? Despite the congestion that exists and the unpleasantness of driving, it is still, in most people's calculus, the preferred choice. When, when someone decides when they're going to take a trip, and it's not just the trip itself, it's when, when they decide where they're going to live or where they're going to work. All the choices we make in life, you know, in terms of our lifestyle are related in some way to transportation. And transportation choices are also, again, it's a calculus that people make in their mind about how they're going to get to someplace. Ultimately, driving usually wins out. Most people find it probably more convenient. It may be more expensive, but that cost tends to be in most people's minds worth it. People think it's safer, at least from the crime perspective, not so much. I think, you know, the traffic safety issue is one of those things where people don't necessarily realize how the risk involved in driving. So that's that's less of a pronounced, I think, factor in that calculus. And just speed, right? Efficiency. It's usually faster to get from point A to point B by driving, even with the traffic. So, of course, the, all the choices that have been made over the years in terms of land use and transportation, net, you know, build out of the system is a combination of lack of affordability, people living far from their jobs, and lots of roads and big roads to get from job to home and vice versa. So I think those are the main factors why we have a lot of traffic in LA. In a dense city, you're just always going to have traffic. Like there's just too much demand unless you're in, you know, an exurb or a rural neighborhood. Does that sound fair? I would say yes. Every Every major city in the world, I think, that's significantly large and dense has congestion. I can't think of one that doesn't, honestly. Well, that's and that's sort I mean, of the even, law of induced demand, right? As long as there's road, we will fill up the roads. Yeah, I think even if we were to provide significantly improved alternatives to driving, such as making transit really efficient and comfortable and pleasant and all those things and fast and biking too, 
I don't think that would necessarily change a lot in terms of the levels of congestion. You would still see tons of congestion, but you would be giving people better choices. You know, you'd be adding an additional method for people to get around. That's certainly, I would say, more pleasant and and hopefully if it's built out correctly, safer and potentially even faster. You know, I, you, I'm sure you've seen in, in traffic in LA, you can sometimes beat the car on a bike uh, or an e-bike, especially. So there's 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 a lot of opportunity to expand the menu. It's like right now, it's kind of an In-N-Out burger where there's like only a small number of items on the menu and there's kind of a secret menu that only a few people know about. <laughs> you know, this is a bad example, but the Cheesecake Factory or, you know, you have places that have huge menus with lots of choices. And sometimes it's too many choices, which I don't think is a problem here, but you want to give people a huge menu of choices that are all attractive. That's a good problem to have, I think. And that's something we were striving for. Well, my feeling, Tim, about living in Los Angeles is that we don't have that many choices. You know, I feel like many times I'm forced to drive because of where I'm going and there's not mass transit options to get to that place. Is that kind of an experience that you're seeing? Yeah, I don't like to say the word forced because I think, you know, there's you could potentially still in most cases find a way to do it alternatively, but it certainly is less attractive for you. So you right. you are influenced by uh, the factors that I kind of mentioned earlier in, in terms of, you know, how long it's going to take you, how comfortable is that going experience going to be? Those are the primary factors, right? I think for me, I, I find myself doing the, making those same, you know, thinking those th- same things through. There's a point where I, I say to myself, depending on where I'm going, as much as I would like to bike or take transit, sometimes it's just not, it's going to take three times the, the, as long and I'm going to be on roads that are really uncomfortable. And uh, in those situations, I do decide to drive. And I I think a lot of people end up in that situation where they make that decision, that can come to that conclusion. So putting it together, we'll always have traffic unless we do something about it. And the, you know, the options are sit in traffic, give people better alternatives or somehow price the roads through like a congestion pricing or dynamic pricing. Can you talk to us about those other options? Well, I think really what what the ultimate solution is a combination of all those things. I think it's kind of a carrot and stick, right? So the the stick would be the congestion pricing. That's that's a way to just strictly disincentivize the driving option without necessarily doing anything else to make the other options better. So doing that alone, I, I, I wouldn't advise it because it's kind of just uh, you know, you may you may generate revenue, but you're making people have an even less pleasant experience and and what what they still don't have any good options. So it has to be done in concert with making the other options better. That's the carrot. So an example is what's already out there on the 110 freeway. You have the express lanes. So on the, in the express lanes, you have to pay if you're a single occupant vehicle. If you're a carpooler, you pay a little bit less. If you take the Silver Line bus, um, you pay the Silver Line fare, which is even less than that. So it's a good idea, but it needs to be sort of that we need to build on that and sort of say, look, either you continue to drive, you pay, you're going to have to pay more to offset essentially the contribution that you're making to the to the system in, in terms of congestion. But here's another option. You can take public transportation, which we're going to make comfortable, safe, fast, efficient. It'll cost you much less. So that way that cost calculus also plays in and it's faster. So it has to win on, on multiple fronts. The option has to be faster, more efficient, Potentially cheaper, that would help a lot because I think people don't really understand the cost or don't really see the cost of driving because it's not something they see every day that sort of adds up slowly. Yeah, and safety and just feeling safe, right? We need to make sure our transit system is safe and people that are biking feel safe and not going to get hit by cars. All those things together would actually, I think, really move the needle. 
Have they done an in-depth study of what it would look like to dynamically price all of LA? <laughs> I don't think they've looked at doing the entire city. Um, I think there's what I what I saw that Metro study is sort of looking at is a few different options. Downtown is one, a few freeways doing some independent freeways is another. I think the Valley, like the Sepulveda Pass basically, and then the Valley into the basin. There's a few ideas. And I, I, you know, I think it may require some experimentation or some more that that study needs to sort of figure out, you know, how those options would work. Uh, To me, the downtown option seems the most like plausible or just feasible just because of the boundaries and the way it can be sort of managed. You you can see Manhattan's about to introduce it. Um, London's been doing it for years, I think effectively. So I think it can be very effective, but again, we need to improve the other things at the same time. And are there good models to make it really equitable? Like what can you do with the money to sort of offset the fact that for some people it will be a burden and for some people they won't care about how, how much it costs. I think there's a few strategies you can, you can provide, you know, relief to low income folks. Um, you can also, again, going back to what I was saying about improving the other modes to, if those other modes are improved, then public transportation is no longer the sort of inferior choice for those who can't afford the other choice. It's It could actually be the better choice in terms of performance and, and everything else. So as long as someone who's low income has another option than driving that is going to not penalize them for being low income, that's, that's really, I think, the answer. Tim, I wonder also if you could talk about the difference between a traffic jam and traffic flowing smoothly. Is there a number difference or a a percentage difference that separates those two things? Because a road that is busy and heavy with traffic, but flowing smoothly is decent, but then a traffic jam stops everything. It's not that different than the flow of water through a, through a drain. You know, basically you can pump a lot of water through a drain and it'll flow. And then you reach a certain critical point and, it, and once it's beyond the maximum, it'll start to back up that drain. So traffic is similar. There, there is a sort of a, a maximum flow rate of a, of a lane of traffic, and it's usually considered 1,900 cars per hour free flow. Right past 1,900, effectively, you're going to start to see backup. The, the difference between free flow and congestion is usually pretty, pretty small. Beyond that, congestion can only get so bad until people will just kind of give up or move to another road or just not take that particular road at that particular time. So right. in order to make that change, it doesn't necessarily require shifting a huge number of trips. Right. I see. Because that's one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show is is trying to get just the people who who want to bike or take transit off of the highways. And that, in many cases, would lower that threshold from traffic jam into free-flowing traffic. It might. I still think that unless you add that, that congestion pricing element, those trips would still be replaced by others. So some people would shift off of that road and bike, but then there would be other people that would replace those trips and drive. Oh, that's and, and interesting. Also drive. To again get to the point where it is now, there's sort of this this place of, I call it equilibrium, even though it's congested. It's sort of this place where the, it's the tolerance level that people are willing to sort of have. Right? There is always that point where people will say enough is enough, and I'm not gonna, you know, if, if they look at a map and there's a there's a crash, right, and it's two hours to get to the valley, they're gonna be like, forget it, I'm just gonna wait till later. Or a lot of people will just make decisions to avoid that sort of situation, but people have a very high tolerance because sometimes you see like gas prices go up and. It takes a lot for people to to change their behavior. Usually people are willing to pay more just because they're so entrenched into their habits. 1900 cars an hour. That's really interesting. Is there a calculation of what percentage of trips we would need to cut to get to zero? But I I hear you that dynamic pricing is probably the only solution. But I'm curious if there is some math on that. You'd have to look at individual corridors, but I would say just based on what I've seen in, in, in the more congested parts of the city, 
everything is operating at the old method of calculating this would be level of service. We would use that at intersections to calculate the performance of the intersection. Everything's at like DRF basically, which means bad, which means people are waiting through it. They're waiting and they're having to sit through an additional light basically. And what would you like to see about bikes since we're bike talk? For me, it's personal and it's professional because while I don't work on active transportation explicitly anymore, I, I still remain involved in a lot of those projects. But I'm also someone who bikes for most of my trips. I'm very car light. Car sits in my driveway for five or six days a week, typically. Um, and I have a cargo bike and, and an e-bike and a, and a mountain bike and a, and a road bike that I use inter- interchangeably. Um, so I would love to see more high quality bike infrastructure that's actually interconnected into a network. So I'll just say personally, because of, as an example of sort of, I think a, a lot of experiences that people have, I live in Burbank and when I decide to go somewhere, I usually take the bike, but I calculate or I determine my route very carefully. I know which streets I'm going to take. And there are certain places that are, make it really hard for me to comfortably get further than a certain area. So like, for example, the freeways, there are only so many places to cross a freeway. Uh, or a railroad track or a river channel. And so sometimes there is no good road to get across those barriers and that can limit my ability to get somewhere. And and in some neighborhoods, it's it's worse than that, right? It's not just those barriers. It's just like every street around somebody where they live is just seems like an arterial with no bike infrastructure. So it's not about making every street having bike infrastructure. It's about creating that, what the mobility plan effectively says, which is build out a network of interconnected facilities on designated roads that would create a grid that would allow you to, t- to make most of those trips comfortably by bike. That's what I'd love to see. Tim, we had Ben Goldfarb on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he wrote the book Crossings. And he talks a lot about how our highways and our roads have segregated animals from their natural habitat. And it sounds like we've done the mm-hmm. same thing with people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just as, as the way the mountain lion can't necessarily cross a highway easily. Right. Uh, that's how I feel oftentimes on a bike where that's, you know, that could be one of the reasons that people don't don't necessarily want to bike or, or walk somewhere if they have a barrier like that. Is there a thought, a talk at DOT or, you know, in these circles that we're building not just low quality bike lanes, but, you know, for the 1% of people who, you know, the light crowd the fit and the brave. and But that we're also not building for like really eight to 80, like, you know, vulnerable road users. Is, is there concerns and plans to address that? As a department, we've certainly been moving more in the quality versus quantity method of, of building out the network. There was a time, you know, a decade ago when we were pretty much just trying to get mileage of bike lanes. But myself, I bike, but I'm also very confident when I'm not with my kid in the cargo bike, I'm pr- I pretty much can ride anywhere. I'm comfortable on any road effectively. I mean, I still look for the roads that are more comfortable, but I forgot kind of in a way what it feels like to be someone who's really not in that same mindset, who's more novice. And a regular bike lane for most people, is just it does very little compared to having nothing. So we are moving that direction, yeah. Tim, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. Absolutely, I love to talk about this stuff. It's kind of fun for me. It's a, it's a hobby in addition to a job. So thanks again for having me. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Fremo, the Los Angeles Department of Transportation, talking about traffic in L.A. That's kind of what everybody talks about, right, Nick? Traffic in L.A. And he says he'd like the mobility plan, which is to build out a network of interconnected facilities on a grid that would let you make trips safely and comfortably by bike. Right. Well, it's great that Tim gets it, I think, about the mobility plan and about safe streets. He's a cyclist. If he only had the power to implement all these changes, then we'd really be onto something. Well, this next interview is about who's got the power. It's uh, with Roger Ruddick, Streets Blog, San Francisco editor, and Stacy Randecker. Stacy, you live in San Francisco and you know Roger very well. 
I do. Yeah. Hi, Nick. Hi, Stacy. We're going to talk about Roger's commentary. San Francisco spent 10 years trying to fake its way to Vision Zero. This is some strong language. It's a banger. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's a commentary. I've written different versions of this over the years for Streets Blog. Basically, we've now reached the 10-year anniversary since the city of San Francisco signed on to its Vision Zero pledge. The Vision Zero pledge is supposed to mean that they will make every effort to make the streets of San Francisco so safe that deaths by collisions with automobiles will be rare. Uh, serious injuries will be rare to the point that we're talking about one or two a year and possibly zero over the course of a year. Now, other countries have aspired to this and achieved it. Oslo, Norway achieved it. Uh, there are cities in the Netherlands that have achieved it. The exotic city of Hoboken, New Jersey has achieved it. San Francisco, not only has it not achieved it, things have gotten far worse. We had 39 deaths yeah. in 2022. That is the right. most since the horrible year of 2013, when I believe we had 32 or three deaths. So we had all that carnage in 2013. And the DOT in San Francisco, SFMTA, and the mayor took this pledge that, you know, we're turning a corner. We cannot tolerate this anymore. Too many people are getting injured and killed. We're going to change the city. Now, for me, one of the things that inspired this commentary that I wrote is I was in Paris earlier this year. Hmm. And the last time I was in Paris was in 2013. So about the same time that San Francisco signed this pledge. So about the same time in Paris, Marianne Hidalgo said pretty much the same thing. We're going to make it so Parisians can ride their bikes safely. And I can tell you, when I was in Paris in 2013, the last time previously, I wouldn't have felt safe riding a bike there. That city was nuts. I mean, just incredible traffic volumes, people not particularly paying attention. It was amazingly like an American city in that respect. When I went back this year, the transformation will blow your mind. I mean, I assume some of our listeners have read about the Paris bike boom and all the changes that they made. When I saw it with my own eyes, it was like, oh, this is systemic. They're working street after street after street. You walk around that city, there are crews out doing really sophisticated, permanent changes to the streets, pouring concrete, fixing things up. And then, you know, for the other nine out of 10 streets, they've just dropped K-Rail in. It's interesting when they do an installation, they put black plastic bollards in the street, if you can picture this, which are almost impossible to discern from the normal uh, stanchions that they have along the sidewalk to keep from parking on the sidewalk, which are actually made out of steel. And mm -hmm. if you try to crash a car into it, you'd smash your car up. So they take a plastic one that looks just like it. And then I guess about 10 or 15 feet behind it is a real steel one. And then 10 or 15 feet behind that, they have a concrete jersey barrier to protect the bike lanes. So if you can imagine that, if you're a driver in Paris and you're not paying attention, you get the warning from the plastic, then you get kind of a body shop trip warning from the steel stanchion. And if you keep going, you total your car on the concrete. So, so you can't turn around and say, hey, sorry, it was really hard to see that installation. I mean, and the number of cyclists on the Rue de Rivoli and the, the major streets in Paris, they actually have achieved what we say in San Francisco we want to achieve, that more people are cycling than driving now. And we get plastic sticks and paint, yes. and they call it protected here. They use the same freaking word. Oh my gosh. So I got especially, shall we say, miffed considering how many real people have been killed and seriously injured in San Francisco at officials from SFMTA saying, well, we tried, we get an A for effort. And <laughs> I have been to so many press conferences with politicians and the director of our DOT 
where they all stand up and, and, you know, they got the TV cameras out and all the lights and the razzmatazz. And they talk about this great installation, this protected bike lane they built. So these are called quick builds, right? Now, the Parisians do quick builds with concrete and you totally can do that. San Francisco, we do quick builds with plastic, but those so-called quick builds. Stacey, how long were we working on Valencia to get a quick build? Well, Six the years, thing seven is, years? there's nothing quick about the design. It isn't quick with the installation. It isn't quick with, oh, this is a pilot and this is we see that um, biking is better. Traffic issues are down and we're going to make it permanent with real materials. Those plastic materials that they use under this quick build designation, that's what we get for keeps. I don't know of anywhere that has really gotten concrete. I've seen one or two in Soma. Well, Soma is the one district where some stuff has happened. Bayshore Boulevard had some installations. There's a couple here or there. But the pedicab driver who was killed on the Embarcadero. Kevin. They had talked about building a protected bike lane on the Embarcadero forever. They waited for someone to get killed. Kevin was killed. The tourists in his pedicab were severely injured as well. It was a hit and run. And they finally put in some concrete protection for a few blocks to connect our ferry terminal to a couple of the main streets in Soma that got installations. But that's also very typical that you need someone to die and people to be injured in such a horrible way that it makes national or maybe even international news. And that is the only time I've seen them come back. Not the only time, but but primarily the time that they'll come back and do something in concrete. And even that is so extremely rare. Just a quote from your article. You say everybody knows how to achieve Vision Zero. Yeah. You don't you don't need press conferences, you don't need outreach meetings, you don't need experiments or innovations, you don't need committees or declarations. All you have to do is get the Dutch yeah, design. The is there a Dutch design manual? Yeah, it's yeah, called the, the Crow, Crow manual. manual. The Crow manual. This is what I have said to the Dutch planners that I know. I dream of when you can have the cars and the bikes and the pedestrians all sort of working together. We don't have that population yet. Like there is something amiss about Americans. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it came from. All I can tie it to is cars and freedom and me and mine and whatever. And there is no collective consideration on a regular basis, certainly not from inside your rolling living room. And that is what creates this sort of hatred for people outside on bikes. Whereas in the Netherlands, their rate of car ownership is not far off of ours. Okay. All adults drive at some point. And when they do drive, they understand that there are places where they are a guest or there are streets where they are not allowed. And even when they're going between those places on the places they are permitted to drive, they do it in a sane manner because those people on bikes out there, it could be their kid, their parents, their coworkers, their neighbors, them, someone. Themselves on a different day. Yeah. It is so. Or even later in the same day. Yeah. Right. I couldn't agree more. And the only point to which I would depart from Dutch designs is you have to acknowledge, as I, I think you're saying, you know, yeah, they own cars in the Netherlands. They're a lot smaller. It's much harder to get a license. It's much easier to lose your license. If there is a collision, it's presumed that the driver is at fault because you're the one responsible for a dangerous machine. So we start out from the perspective of, okay, you probably did something wrong. Let's figure out what it is. And if it isn't your fault, we'll deal with that later. But let's look at it from that perspective. 
So where I would depart from the Dutch design, and is the only place I would depart, is the same place that the Parisians have departed from it and the same place that they have departed from it in New York, which is for a street with this speed limit and this width and this many lanes, the Dutch manual would say you need a curb of this height. Well, guess what? We got to deal with Ford F-150s. So we can't have, you know, a four inch curb or whatever they're applying to that situation. We need a Jersey barrier that can stop an SUV. Now, fortunately, we have those. And I mentioned in the article that we had the Salesforce slash Dreamforce conference. And I think we did the same thing with the APEC conference. Yep. We got Jersey barriers and we put them on the sidewalk to protect crowds, I guess, from runaway cars and terrorism or whatever the hell we were doing. But we put them on the right side of our little plastic toy protected bike lane on Howard Street and, and I think on other streets. So it's like, wait a minute, SFMTA, our DOT, our Department of Transportation is claiming this is a resource issue. Well, clearly you have the resources. You're just not using them. You're not prioritizing the safety and life of cyclists. And one thing I want to add to that is the Dutch also, you don't have cars killing pedestrians the way we have in San Francisco either. Part of the Dutch design philosophy is if you successfully make your streets safe for cyclists, it's going to be safe for everybody. We're talking to Roger Ruddick, the author of the article, San Francisco spent 10 years trying to fake its way to Vision Zero in Streets Blog SF and Stacey Randecker. There's a picture of this fake protected bike lane in your article where the cyc- you have cars and then the plastic flex posts, which don't do anything to stop Silly cars. straws, I call them. Silly straws. Mm-hmm. And then you have the bike lane and then you have these Jersey barriers, which are concrete protecting pedestrians, I guess, in case the car makes it through the cyclists. <laughs> the picture's there in the article. <laughs> and these pictures, I mean, they, they really say it all. It's like, how can you possibly make the claim, as um, our DOT has and, and does, that you don't have enough people to make these installations? You don't have the resources to do it. You don't have the money to do it. You do. And actually, even if you couldn't afford concrete Jersey barriers, you know, you can go to Home Depot and get some planters and fill them with soil. Those are pretty good at stopping an errant motorist who's texting or drunk or whatever. There's also the temporary type Jersey barriers that they use a lot of construction sites, which are just giant plastic containers in the shape of a Jersey barrier. And you fill those with water or with sand. And that way, if a car plows into it, the car is generally stopped, or at least enough of the energy from that moving car is absorbed so that people on the other side of the Jersey barrier have a fighting chance. What this city and other cities in the Bay Area, and unfortunately other cities in the country have been doing, is they paint a stripe, and people point out that a stripe's not enough. So then they put in flex posts, silly straws, as I call them. And the really infuriating thing about the flex posts, the soft hit posts that call a few different things, is the manufacturers of those posts actually advertise them because they won't damage a car. The very point of putting those in is if someone is texting and swerves into the lane, they won't have to take a trip to the body shop or have their car totaled on them. Well, there's um, an awesome visual that I put it up. It's on um, Valencia for people. And it shows a pickup truck running down a, a quarter it. mile of them in a row. <laughs> you know, and it's and like, that's a selling point. That's from an ad. That's right. That <laughs> is really? their advertisement oh for them. Yeah. And yet they call it protection in San Francisco. They're delineators. They're there to say, hey, don't go here, car. But they're absolutely not meant to stop motor vehicle. Vertical paint, as we call them. 
So another point that you make in the article, San Francisco spent 10 years trying to fake its way to Vision Zero, is about politics. Yeah. The different kinds of politics. Yeah. I mean, so the next question of all this is why? I mentioned in the article the case of Julie Mitchell, whose son was killed in uh, 2013 while riding his bike by a turning, uh, I believe it was a garbage truck. But yep. and. You know, I talked to her in a radio interview a while ago about Vision Zero, and and I made the same point that the Dutch have actually figured out how to build safe bike lanes. And she said, well, you know, why don't we just do that here? And I, I just said politics. And she knew that answer already. It, it, I think it was more out of frustration that she was asking the question. But it's kind of hideous, and I, but I don't know how else to express this. It's It's a form of evil. You've been asked to protect the lives and limbs of people on the streets of San Francisco and somehow you toss into that, I want to do something that's politically balanced. I want to you know, make sure that I don't have to take away too many parking spots to build this protected bike lane because you do have to lose some parking spaces to maintain sight lines for turning drivers, a lot of technical issues for why you have to do that. But if your overriding concern is protecting merchants and their parking interests, which are valid concerns, but if you are putting that on the same level as protecting someone's life, I mean, literally, that's what we're talking about. We just mentioned 39 people killed, right? So we're protecting people's parking concerns over the lives and limbs of other people. And anybody who thinks those two things are on the same level, I think needs to take a good long look in the mirror and ask themselves, what are they doing? What I'd love are to you talk doing? about the politics of this because there is only one person who has been involved from 2014 to this day, and that is our mayor, London Breed. She was yeah, on the board of supervisors in 2014, and she remained there until she was elected mayor. She has been our mayor since then. She is the only one who has been there the whole time. Every death, you know, it's been on her watch, you yeah. know, she's done nothing. If you only count bike lanes that are either protected by a row of parked cars, um, not including the intersections where they don't protect the intersections, and we can get into what, what that means exactly, but uh, they've built maybe five or six miles of truly, that sounds you know, more like A plus it. gold standard protected bike lanes. That's pathetic. And I think you're right. Even if Mayor London Breed had not been a supervisor for those years before, she you know, even if she were just getting started, you would see that she's getting started and she's just not. I think of John Bowder's over in Emeryville. Night and day. I mean, you go to Emeryville, uh, granted it's a smaller city, but you see the changes happening and quickly. When they put plastic posts in, they do something a little akin to what Paris does. Instead of using white plastic straws, they used gray ones. So they look like concrete, right? They're the same color as concrete and they look bigger, like they look more robust. And they had a garage full of these uh, public trash cans that were made out of concrete that they weren't using. So they took them and <laughs> they interspersed real concrete trash cans with these plastic ones. So if someone is drunk, texting, otherwise not paying attention, and they start to drive into the bike space, very much like in Paris, they get that warning, you know, that thoop, thoop, you'll hit a couple of the plastic ones. Then you're hitting a garbage can that's a pretty big concrete garbage can and you're going straight to the body shop you know, with thousands of dollars of bills. And to see the difference between Emeryville and San Francisco, it's like night and day. We don't have to go all the way to Paris or even the Netherlands. And, you know, Emeryville's just getting started. You know, in just the, the years that I've lived in the Bay Area, and I live in Oakland, not too far from Emeryville. Emeryville was kind of indistinguishable from Oakland as far as street layout goes just a few years ago. And now they have bulb outs at most of the intersections. They have protected bike lanes in lots of places. 
they still have some fake stuff that they're, you know, they're improving, but you see the motion. You see that they are sincerely working on getting to a safer city. And San Francisco, here or there, they do some stuff that's good and a couple of things that are great. You know, I'm, I'm not going to deride uh, car-free JFK which the, or the JFK they promenade didn't do now. It. Or, the, they didn't do it. The advocates did it. wasn't the mayor. The advocates did it. And a lot of other parties did it. And the mayor at least endorsed it. She was not there until it was a foregone conclusion that it would happen. We don't have a leader when it it's comes. It's leading from behind. I know. What about the huge bureaucracy? I mean, isn't that also a, uh, I guess, no. if you had a. The SFMTA, which is our DOT, is one of the only ones for a city this size that has municipal transportation, the streets, the taxis, all the pavement, the traffic lights. It is all controlled by one agency, and that is SFMTA. They say they have to ask the fire department. Guess what? They don't actually. <laughs> They own the streets. They are able to do it. And they were set up to be depoliticized because this wasn't supposed to happen that the neighborhood who has the active supervisor gets X, Y, Z or doesn't get any parking removed or whatever. It was supposed to be a completely apolitical organization. The leadership that we've had at SFMTA has not understood that part of how it is set up. Somehow they just keep, yes, ma'am. Oh, you don't want that to be a slow street? You don't want that to have actual protection? Well, we won't do that. Let's all uh, check out the article. San Francisco spent 10 years trying to fake its way to Vision Zero. You think they know it that they're faking it? (laughs) They don't care. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not a high priority. It's a non-priority. For whatever reason, they've convinced themselves that the sentiments of drivers and people concerned about parking have more weight as far as getting reelected and continuing their political careers than cyclists do. And that's pretty grim and depressing. I mean, we have a lot of cyclists in the city. I think they're wrong, but I think the advocacy community is a little disoriented right now um, and is not coming forward with a clear voice to saying we need the city to do better. And the political calculus is that I'm accusing some politicians and some leaders in the bureaucracy of being incredibly heartless, but I don't know what other conclusion to come to uh, when they build infrastructure that, I mean, maybe on some level, they've convinced themselves it's for the safety of all users. But I don't see how you can think that if you've got a passport and have traveled a little bit. Um, If you've actually looked at Dutch and Danish bike usage, I mean, they have cities vary between a third of all trips to 50% of all trips to 60% of all trips done by bicycle. Most of the remainder done on foot or by transit. And then, you know, a good chunk done by automobile as well. But it's a hell of a lot safer to drive there than it is here. So do they know what they're doing is getting people killed? I mean, well, yeah, they must. They must because they've seen the same injury statistics that we look at. I've seen the photo ops that at least Mayor Breed was on in Paris and in the Netherlands last summer. There are pictures of her on bikes in both of those places. I haven't seen her on one in her own city. And she lives within two miles of City Hall. And I was just on Page Street. That's the street she lives on last week. And I rode by the giant black SUV with the two police in it waiting to pick her up at her house. The prime minister of the Netherlands rides his bike to work. Mayor Hidalgo rides her bike. (laughs) John Bowders of Emeryville rides his bike for crying out loud. I've ridden with him. (laughs) I know this for a fact. (sighs) 
you know, our advocacy groups maybe have lost their way a little bit. But I remember a few years ago, the SFMTA had a plan to do protected bike lanes on Turk and Golden Gate, two streets through uh, the Tenderloin section of San Francisco, which actually has the worst collision injury data in the entire city. It's just one of the most dangerous places to walk or, or ride mm-hmm. a bike. And the city at the last minute said, you know what, we don't think we can actually make a, a protected bike lane there. We're just going to put a stripe down. How's that? And the Bicycle Coalition, I won't use an expletive since it's radio, but basically told the city to do something to itself over that. I think they may have literally said that at some point. And the director of the Bicycle Coalition took a lot of heat for that. It, you know, like, what are you, ungrateful? I mean, they're, they're doing something. And the city relented. The advocates moving forward from there have, shall we say, acquiesced way too much where the city promises something and then at the last minute backs off. Uh, We talked extensively about Valencia Street. That was one such example where we actually had a plan on the books to build correct, tested, Dutch-style protected bike lanes uh, for not all of Valencia, but many more blocks. And that was pulled away at the last minute, again, for political concerns. Um, Jeffrey Tumlin, the director of SFMTA, wrote that in an editorial that it was about parking, finally. Um, whereas his staff had denied that for many, many years and was on record denying it. I know I urged the Bicycle Coalition, both publicly and privately, please do not accept this. You know, it's okay to lose sometimes. But when your DOT really stabs you in the back like that, you got to at least say something about it as an advocacy group. And they didn't. They went along yeah, but with I this don't, as well. Better this, than nothing. The only thing I had seen them do in this latest turn was accept whatever SFMTA said. And that was it. You know, as an advocacy journalist, as someone who writes about this stuff, I felt like we were on the same side and we talked about what the coalition was advocating for. You know, they would provide me with background information. And and I felt like we were working together. And I I don't really feel that anymore. It it seems like They they lost their way. Like, yeah, you know, they're out there commending SFMTA about um, the JFK promenade and Shelley Drive in, in McLaren Park. And, and that's great. I, I mean, that's I'm very glad that those streets were made car free. That's that's fantastic. I mean, that's that's something that we can all be proud and happy about. But when it comes to the sort of cage match, the brutal warfare that is San Francisco politics, it's like they just sheathed their swords and said, OK, we're on your side now. What you do that we like, we'll support. And if you do something that we don't like, well, we'll kind of support it too. It's mysterious. I I don't like where the the advocacy groups have gone. Hopefully change will come. Yeah, I hope so. Well, they are looking for a new executive director and I hope they get a good one because we need to have that kind of firepower that gets the city in motion to make the changes that are necessary, not just for the people that live here, But for life on earth itself, we've got to start changing the way people move around and bikes are the best way to do it. Yeah, I mean, if we're not going to have a progressive transportation policy in San Francisco with its density and its short distances, and and I think it's much better than average for America public transportation, where's it going to happen in the U.S.? You know, I mean, New York seems to be doing well, and Hoboken, obviously, is a good example. But I guess Emeryville is going to lead the way for the West Coast. It would be nice if it were a bigger city. but uh, so It's not going to be San Francisco or LA, apparently. Thanks for your article, Roger. You're welcome. Thanks. So according to Roger Reddick, 
and Stacy Randecker, the San Francisco Department of Transportation, the SFMTA, and the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition could use some leadership. They're just not doing the job. Now we're going to talk to a couple of bike ambassadors with the Cycling Embassy of Japan about how Tokyo is good for bikes despite its leaders. This is James Pula and Chad Fyan of Cycling Embassy in Japan. Hello. I saw some of your posts about rides in Japan, and I thought that you could just talk about uh, how the Department of Transportation in Japan is working out for as far as bikes go, because I think it's pretty good for bikes over there, right? Absolutely. So we are, like you said, we're not the Department of Transportation, and we also aren't Japanese, but uh, we uh, we are a small group of guys who basically got together because we were concerned about the, the safety and the infrastructure for cyclists in Japan, and also to try to tell the world how it kind of works here in Japan as far as cycling. And so we consult sometimes with the Department of Transportation on certain ideas that we have, but in general, they have their own way of developing their bicycle network here and kind of allowing people to uh, to kind of make for themselves the kind of infrastructure that they want. So uh, what we do have a lot of here in Tokyo is very quiet back streets. And so as long as you can figure out the back streets of Tokyo, you're pretty safe on your bicycle. And so our focus is to just make sure that those main arteries have uh, good and safe and protected bike lanes uh, here in Tokyo. You said people make their own infrastructure. What does that mean? <laughs> well, they make their way through the city in their own safe way. So the law here is somewhat flexible, I guess, where you are required to ride your bike on the street. But if the street is too dangerous, they do allow you to kind of cycle where you feel safest. And sometimes that does mean that people ride on the sidewalk. That means they ride in kind of uh, pedestrian areas. And so there's not like specific bicycle infrastructure that exists out there, but people make it their own kind of way through the city. So it, the safest way that they find to get through the city on their bicycles. And here cycling is such a, such a big thing because people uh, use their bikes for everyday life. And so it's not just for recreational cyclists. It's actually every day somebody in the family probably gets on their bikes to go off to the grocery store or to go to take the kids to soccer practice or uh, just to get around town. Most commutes here, uh, as long as it's within about uh, five kilometers, uh, people are using their bikes to get around. And they uh, they make their own way through the city to figure out like what's the safest way. And kids are also on their bikes and the kids cycle everywhere kind of on their own. But here, uh, most people are just kind of making their own way in the safest way possible. And how did this happen? I mean, in one of our interviews, we talk about the Netherlands is like the North Star. Uh, often when people say, well, you know, America is not the Netherlands, we can't be like that. The answer is, well, the Netherlands wasn't the Netherlands until we had, you know, these these protests and like a revolution. But well, how did it happen in Japan? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So obviously uh, the Netherlands were impacted by the uh, oil embargo back in the 1970s. And they were also dealing with a lot of children uh, dying in car accidents. And those were the two kind of big pushes to try to make for better cycling infrastructure. Whereas I think Tokyo and Japan itself 
the bike was introduced way back uh, when they opened up Japan to the West. It became very, very popular, just like you, I'm sure you've seen like pictures of、uh, China, where a lot of people would be on the bikes. And similar here, people use their bikes because it is、uh, convenient. And I think it's primarily because we live in such dense cities here. So everything is built very close together. And because it's so close, It just makes sense to get on your bicycle. And so, people here, there's not like a real thought process that they go through, like, oh, I want to be more eco friendly or I want to be、uh, super healthy. So, I'm going to get on my bike. They just think, you know, the store is right over there, but it's a little too far to, to walk. And so, bicycle has a basket. And so, I'll just hop on the bike and we'll head off to the grocery store and just get the stuff because it's super convenient just to use your bicycle. And since you're using your bicycle for that, you use it for other things in life. And、uh, so the bicycle just became a really, really convenient way of getting around. And that's really pr- pretty much what, all it took for uh, uh, Japan to have a lot of cyclists out there. So, Chad, you're in Tokyo, and James, you're in Yokohama. It could be considered, I think, part of the Tokyo、uh, metropolitan area. <laughs>、uh, it's only about 10 kilometers south of Tokyo. I often ride up to Tokyo on Old Tokaido, the historic road. You feel safe going all the way up from Tokyo to Yokohama. So, bicycle usage in Japan is incredible.、Uh, people use bikes every day, like, te- like Chad said. However, there, yeah, there's, there's room for improvement. The、uh, slightly longer distance travel going all the way through the city or connecting cities that are actually close together Tokyo, Kawasaki, and Yokohama if they had the willpower, that's what seems to be missing. There's、um, these half hearted efforts. To lay down some paint、uh, guidelines, little chevrons, blue paint that are on a lot of roads now. It's half hearted.、Um, what's missing here are the type of infrastructure that, that's been developed in the past 10 years, 15 years in, in cities like、uh, New York, where I'm from, Paris, and, and London. These cities are really changing dramatically and quickly, and they seem to have the, the will. To make a, a big change, the change that's necessary to get you know, more people on bikes. And, and you know, there's a lot of people using bikes now, but the change that's needed is not happening fast enough. And it's still dangerous. More than 50% of、uh, traffic fatalities are cyclists or pedestrians. I'm looking at TokyoByBike.com and it says that Tokyo is 16th bicycle friendly city. That was in 2019. Right. But it, it says this award belongs not to the city of Tokyo, not to the mayor, the urban planners. This award belongs to the residents of Tokyo who, despite no support from their leaders, continue to cycle daily in mind boggling numbers. So it's what, just what you said. Yeah, it's the resilience of、um, the people going about their. Lives, finding a way to ride. Using the bicycle is the best way to do what they need to do. When we lived in New York, I had a car. I always had a car from the time I was 17. When I moved to Yokohama, I didn't really need to have a car. I saw the possibility of a cargo bike. So I, I did a search for、um, who might be selling a Yuba Mundo cargo bike in, in Japan. And there happened to be at that time in 2009. Uh, one shop in, in Nagano, like in the mountains of Japan. So he had a store model that he sold me for a very、uh, a low price, and it changed my life. It was the best investment I ever made. That really got me into cycling, and I really、um, 
saw the uh, potential. Most people in Japan don't use cargo bikes. And uh, only recently have we seen cargo bikes being used in Japan. After I met Chad and uh, other people from uh, Cycling Embassy through Bicycle Rides, uh, Organized Rides in Tokyo, uh, we got together and uh, we formed the Cycling Embassy. And it was all about disseminating news and from around the world and trying to pass that on to our Japanese members, our contacts. We've bought some uh, uh, cycling movies and uh, cycling advocacy films, and uh, we've done the translations and the subtitles. So uh, that's how it all started, and, and that's that's what we're about. Were you inspired by the Dutch Cycling Embassy? Yeah, that's kind of what uh, yeah, we kind much. of wanted to create a name that uh, had the kind of uh, gravitas that the Dutch had. Uh, it was kind of at the beginning just a, a way to have an impressive name to get our, our foot in the door so we could talk to the policymakers. And having the, the big title of Cycling Embassy, it makes people kind of raise their eyebrow and be like, hmm, what's, what's that? Oh. And uh, we get to explain who we actually are. And uh, it's, it's been really good to have that kind of name and recognition. We obviously would like to uh, be more engaged with the Department of Transportation here. We have a new book that has a lot of uh, great ideas from around the world. It's all in Japanese, so they can uh, look at that. Right now, the policymakers tend to focus primarily on uh, really quick things that they can do. So last year, they uh, or a few years back, they implemented mandatory bicycle insurance here in in Tokyo. So if you are a Tokyo resident and you're on a bike, uh, they did make it mandatory that you have bicycle insurance, but there's no penalty if you don't, and there's no way that they're actually going around and checking. Uh, so it's kind of a toothless rule. Then last year, they made a uh, mandatory helmet requirement, and that also does not have any uh, penalties if you don't wear your helmet. The way it's written, it's basically saying you should try your hardest to wear a helmet if you are uh, cycling, but there's no penalties to it. Most people don't follow it. Like I was out yesterday with the family. Uh, we were walking, but uh, everybody else that was cycling I think maybe I saw 1% of the people cycling uh, actually have a helmet on. And most people, if they do have a helmet, it's just in their basket in case somebody talks to them about it. I'm looking at TokyoByBike.com again, and it says, rather than supporting cycling in Tokyo, Japanese authorities consider cycling to be something that needs to be controlled, regulated. Each time authorities step into the cycling space and try to change the rules or the environment, it shows that they've not done their research and their ill-advised decisions have a negative impact on cyclists around the city. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think they um, are more interested in, in putting the brake on cycling developing. And um, every modern city around the world that I think we would consider to be a progressive modern city is actively encouraging cycling and even dissuading or discouraging driving as much as possible. Um, it's happening at different speeds around the world and different uh, uh, cities are doing it quicker than others. Like Paris is um, incredible with the, they're just full on commitment to um, changing the city. Tokyo is a very dense city. Cycling using a bicycle is the easiest and the most convenient and the best choice in so many for so many trips. But after the earthquake in 2011, and again the earthquake yesterday in Kanazawa, Ishikawa, the bicycle usage will will increase. But instead of encouraging that, instead of making it easier to use bicycles, 
the police are making it more difficult. And like with Ishikawa yesterday, you can look on Twitter, the video and the, and the pictures that people on a bicycle in, in the city posted a video of the line of cars trying to get out of the city and they're just heeding the call to get out of the city to get away from the shore and to evacuate as quickly as possible the people were stuck they were not moving right they could not move whereas having the road clear of cars and allowing people as much as possible to to use bicycles uh, to to get out to escape to get to safety more quickly it's the it would be the obvious choice so yeah, the police are uh, actually hindering, uh, I think, the use of bicycles in Japan. You're leading by example with with doing things that are fun. I saw you had a Santa ride. Yeah, both Tokyo and Yokohama have um, critical mass rides, theme rides like uh, Halloween rides and get dressed up in costumes and things. And uh, yeah, of course, we had a, a Santa ride and um, kids were laughing and uh, smiling and um spreading the uh, cycling joy, the happiness, <laughs> showing people what a bike can do. Thanks, bike ambassadors, James Sippel yeah. and Chad Fayan, for your work with the Cycling Embassy in Japan. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Oh, can I just mention that one of our members, Kosuke Miyata, just published a book. It's uh, called Critical Cycling. It's in Japanese, and he, he talks a lot about what we were talking about and disseminating news from uh, other cities and bringing that information into Japan. Great book. If we can, if they have it, we'll put it on our bookshop on biketalk.org. Oh, that'd be great. Appreciate it. Thank you. It seems like in Japan, they are dealing with a lot of the same things we're dealing with, you know, subpar infrastructure being put in. Yet in cities like Tokyo, which are very dense, they are overcoming a lot of those obstacles. But also, did you notice that one of the things he talked about, about the recent earthquake in Japan, about how people go to bikes during natural disasters? And how come we never see that in the movies? Maybe you should make that movie, Taylor. <laughs> I would like to make a big natural disaster movie where bikes save the world. Yeah. If you like the show, share it with friends, like us on social media, and consider donating to our Patreon account at biketalk.org. Send us some feedback, and we look forward to your questions. All right. Thanks, Taylor. This is Uncle Dan. Hope you're having a great day. We need to have uh, transportation be more healthy for our world. We need to come up with ideas on getting around like bicycles. People need to, to recognize the cars are very expensive and smog producing everything. Bike talk is about healthier ways to get around. Bike talk is talking about a better world. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. That was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week.